0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's show, I have a guest I've been wanting to meet for a while. We've actually never spoken before now. His name is Dr. Caleb Rossiter. He's a mathematician and statistician who comes from a really interesting background and is now the chair of the CO2 Coalition. And as you'll see there's a very big thing happening in terms of people who oppose any kind of open debate on CO2 and climate and energy issues trying to use Facebook to suppress the CO2 coalition. So I wanted to talk to him about that and about his background more broadly. So without further ado, uh, Caleb Rossiter, welcome to Power Hour. Uh,
0: Alex, it is a treat to be with you. I too have been looking forward to this uh, for a while since reading The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels.
1: Terrific. Well, let's start off with your uh, background. I I think you sort of like me, sort of like Patrick Moore, maybe are not the most obvious candidate to be any kind of champion of fossil fuels. So how did you get into this issue?
0: Um, Alex, I was minding my own business in the 2000s as a professor at American University. I was the only professor there that was both in the international affairs department because my background is as an Africanist, teaching African politics. Uh, But also my training uh, when I got my PhD was in the use of statistics and public policy, uh, which is pretty much called policy analysis. So I also was a mathematician and teaching statistics and mathematical modeling over in the uh, math department at AU. So I was teaching in both both fields, probably the only person had that particular listing, And in both cases, in the early 2000s, I bumped into this topic uh, because of my teaching, much to my surprise.
1: Okay. Well, keep the story going. How did you bump into it?
0: Well, in the Africa course, uh, energy poverty and the need for energy in Africa is probably the the biggest barrier to life expectancy rising and greater opportunity uh, because only about a third of Africans have Uh, electricity in their homes. And almost every African business, even in the more developed uh, electrical grids like South Africa, faces blackouts and brownouts every day, which make it hard to uh, build things, sell things, uh, and attract foreign investment. So I always knew that electricity in Africa was a very important topic. And I found out that my government, the United States government, was blocking World Bank loans to South Africa for their coal-fired power plants, which is the most economical and efficient way of generating electricity, even though the plants could use new American technology that almost virtually eliminate sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, and particulate matter, which are the things that really kill people because of their fears of carbon dioxide, a harmless byproduct. So while I was pondering that in my statistics classes uh, for international affairs, Students would have to write a paper every semester on some international study in the statistical field, could be any topic, you know, what's the best way to discourage people from uh, risky behaviors, spread HIV, what's the best way to do cropping for maize, and what's behind the rise in temperature. A student wrote a paper on the climate models, and I teach mathematical modeling, and I gave her an F because I said, this is a ridiculous paper, there's no proof here at all. This is just somebody's mathematical game. She came back and showed me this was the IPCC's seminal document. And I started laughing because, just as a mathematician, not knowing much about climate, I knew that the models can do anything you want them to do and they're not very helpful after a month or so, let alone Wait, so, a, a so 100 years.
1: Let, let me ask about that. So, what was it about the models that made you able, view it as a statistical game? And particularly if you can explain it to the uninitiated, because most people watching this are not mathematical
0: modelers. Sure. Uh, and actually, that will tie into Facebook, Alex, because when we write about models, that's when we get censored because they're so sensitive about this on the climate alarm side because all they have is the models. There haven't been any data that indicate a rise in extreme weather and rate of sea level rise. And all this is UN data. It hasn't happened yet. So they're left arguing that it may happen and that's where the models come. I laughed because it said, we're 95% sure temperature is going to go up four degrees in the next 100 years, four degrees Celsius, which is a lot. And I said, you know, you can't say you're 95% sure about anything in statistics if you haven't done a statistical test. I knew that the models can be completely gained by changing one of the thousands of parameters. Uh, They're really not oracles. Models are mathematically, they are tools that you can use. So they were misrepresenting what a model was in such a way that I knew there was something very fishy. And so between my African realization and my statistical realization, I began to teach my entire statistics course to hundreds of students a year on climate. Just go get the data, let's analyze it, let's learn about it. Uh, That was the beginning of the end for me uh, in my little liberal academic world.
1: And so, I mean, by background, you are not considered a political conservative, right?
0: Au contraire, I come out of the Vietnam anti-war movement. Uh, I run a website on anti-imperialism that opposes US uh, support for dictators in developing countries where we have our our network. Uh, I worked for the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a left-wing anti-imperial think tank until unfortunately I published something on climate change in Africa in the Wall Street Journal and got fired. Um, I'm a very unlikely uh, advocate for this position. Uh, only for political reasons, not for scientific. There's no reason why the scientists shouldn't say what they see in the data. You have to remember, the Democratic Party is now 100% on board the climate alarm and the need to censor those who disagree. Um, I worked with Ed Markey, who you may know is a a senator from uh, Massachusetts, but I knew him first when he was a congressman from Massachusetts, helping me stop the war in El Salvador back in the 1980s. He was put in charge of a global warming committee in 2007, uh, which tried to censor all sorts of opinions. And it just seemed like a complete change for him from his intellectual approach that I knew before. Um, I've been a democratic candidate for Congress in 1998. Uh, I'm a longtime democratic party activist, but I really couldn't be in the democratic caucus. Now you will get run out for uh, even questioning any of the thousands of parts that make up the climate catastrophe narrative.
1: So as you were coming up with your analysis, I mean, surely you had to know this was controversial,
0: right? No, and, and no. You did I, was, I, was, uh, I had never given it a second thought, Alex. Um, if I'd heard about it, it would be that uh, there's somebody out there uh, saying that fossil fuels are a danger and we have to eliminate them. And I certainly believe that because I never had looked at it. It never gave me much pause. Remember, I've spent my career in controversial stands uh, against the Vietnam War, against apartheid in the, in the 60s and 70s, and U.S. investment in South Africa, uh, against the wars in El Salvador uh, for the campaign to ban landmines. You know, I always was fighting for lost causes that eventually came true. So I, I really wasn't thinking it was very different to disagree with a, a few scientific modelers on climate change, uh, but I now know that I was wrong. This one is... Is really intense, uh, as you know, and the censorship drive has turned liberals away from the old "I defend what you say, even though I disagree" into uh, "shut up." Yeah, like Voltaire is not too present <laughs> today. And I was—I came up in an academic household. My father was a history professor at Cornell University. You know, we worshipped uh, that saying. My father taught us that when we were kids, and I—I try to live by it in the Vietnam War, when we had anti-war teach-ins, we would invite the State Department because we thought we could out-argue them. We didn't try to, you know, boo them, shout them down and and throw them out. Uh, So that's a very disturbing change in today's cancel culture. Uh, And in many ways, I think the dry run for the cancel culture on every issue, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, statues, uh, God knows what all, Me Too, uh, came in the climate change arena for about the last 15 years, this movement to uh, censor and proscribe and, and shut up essentially uh, people who dispute any alarmist uh, statement um, Look what happened to Michael Moore recently. He's the liberals liberal for pointing out that so-called renewables aren't renewable uh, At all, which is not really a scientific issue about the warming of the air It's just a question of how would you get rid of fossil fuels? Could you afford to do it? Uh, he's been viciously censored by the same group that is censoring me on Facebook a well-funded alarmist group called um, Climate Feedback.
1: Climate Feedback. Okay, I'll get to that in a minute. But let me ask, once you started looking into the climate issue and and through today, what's your current evaluation of rising CO2 levels and what impact they'll have on climate and what impact that'll have on us?
0: As a statistician, I first answered the question, what impact have they had? And I published on our website of the CO2 Coalition the talk I would have given this year at LibertyCon that uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez of the Congress tried to censor me from by threatening Facebook they would get their advertisers to turn against them if they kept sponsoring these um, li- libertarian conventions. They did invite me back. Unfortunately, it was uh, you know, canceled because of coronavirus, but I wrote up this thing called Climate Statistics 101, which you can get at my website. And in it, I go through some very simple slides to look at the rate of sea level rise, both before and after what we would call the carbon emissions era, which started in about 1950, when there was a massive amount of carbon dioxide that could raise temperature. The uh, number of hurricanes per decade in the world, the um, number of floods per decade in the world, rate of um, droughts in the world. None of these data are statistically significantly different in the period that has carbon dioxide as a component in warming and the period before 1950 that didn't. So as a statistician, I usually say, I stop right there. We do not have data to show that the slight warming uh, that's occurred since 1900 is in any way a, uh, causing a increase in the rate of sea level rise that's been coming up since about 1800, all, all naturally. Um, uh, you know, And all these other, other areas like drought and hurricanes, the data are just not there. And so I try to explain in this briefing what statistical significance is, how we use it in science. Before you get to the models, which predict the future, you still have to get people to stop saying, we see the impacts today of carbon dioxide-based warming. We don't.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a, a really important point. And from a moral perspective, the way I look at it is the people claiming climate catastrophe in the future, they portray today as a state of climate catastrophe. And they stay, they portray today as overall a bad planet. And from a human perspective, the planet has never been a better place to live and climate has never been safer because of our industrial powers that we have. And so my view is I don't trust someone to predict the future if they can't predict the present.
0: <laughs> or they won't acknowledge the present. When I testified before Congress last year, it was a surreal experience because I'd been up there in the dais next to the Democratic members just 10 years before as the staff director for a foreign policy committee doing the questioning. And here I was getting beat up by the Democrats as I sat down below. Uh, And I pointed this out to them um, that if you want to talk about human health and human prosperity, look at the use of fossil fuels over the last 200 years and the rise in income. Uh, the, The main message I gave them was if you want to have long life expectancy in your society, get rich. Get rich. Then you will be able to have the health care. You'll be able to have the education. You'll be able to have the uh, medical facilities. You, uh, you'll be able to have the crops and the improving diets. That's what Africa has been missing out on because of the very limited supply of electricity to homes and industry. In Africa, as you know, I'm, I'm sure you know, having been there, that the a typical African is inside a house, and when it's cold, they burn wood and cow dung and coke in their house and have terrible lung diseases, about 3 million people a year, the UN says, um, die just because they're breathing indoor air pollution. That goes away when you have fossil-fueled electricity.
1: So when did, you mentioned in, I think, the early 2000s. So in the early 2000s, were you aware of the energy piece of this puzzle? Because you Uh, Or when when did that really become pregnant to you? Because I've obviously been an expert on Africa and poverty for a long time. And I'm curious when you got the energy piece of it.
0: (sighs) Bit by bit, I began to talk and speak and write on my findings. uh, The reputation of my course in which the students simply pick a study that's in the IPCC report and is referenced and made to sound horrific, whether it's about ocean acidity, so-called, or about um, hurricanes, or whatever, uh, crop failures, they would go back and read the actual study because it's a statistics course and, and learn how it was done. So that reputation began to develop and I began to speak a bit on the campus. And I think naturally when you talk about uh, climate change, you're led to the point which Ms. Ocasio-Cortez has, thank goodness, delivered us to, putting out there the Green New Deal for everybody to see what does it mean if you can't use fossil fuels? If 85% of the world energy right now is fossil fuels and it's pr- promoting wealth and well-being, uh and, and, and it's cleaner than ever with the kind of scrubbing technologies and catalytic converters that had been invented, what happens if you replace it? What would it mean if you had to use s- solar and wind all over Africa? And of course, it would mean absolute green death. Um, it's not reliable energy. You can't have a hospital system. You can't have a food delivery system. You're never going to have air conditioning. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. So I think I was led there from asking the question, these people want to get rid of fossil fuel power. What could we use?
1: And, we're, I mean, you must have heard, you know, the different claims that well, of course, 100% renewable works, and if only we have enough batteries or only we connect enough places through long enough transmission lines. How persuasive did you find those kinds of claims? I
0: always say, bring it on. We would love to have it. I'm all for it. But they can't deliver it without the, well, first of all, it takes tremendous government subsidies to bring down the so-called uh, pr- a price, even though the cost is quite high. Uh, the studies our economists have done very conservatively say it's about four times as expensive, really, to get your electricity in America uh, from a wind farm rather, or a solar panel uh, moved into the system than through a natural gas a plant burning very clean fuels with very little sulfur dioxide. Um, it's about four times expensive. But it's not even there. It's, it's intermittent. You still need the natural right. gas powered plant at night and when the clouds come out. So you haven't saved that as Michael Moore points out in his interesting documentary, where he accepts the premise of climate catastrophe but says this ain't addressing it. You need to have the CO2 producing fossil fuel plant online and spinning if you want to keep. Your
1: AC and lights on. Yeah, one thing I, I find just <laughs> increasing ever annoying about the discussion is that when you talk about cost, like you can't compare the cost of an unreliable supplemental form of energy to a reliable, uh, you know, baseline form of energy. So it's there's no such thing as solar and wind being self-sufficient anywhere in the world, generating electricity on any scale at any price. So, I mean, one thing that seems consistent with you is you're like in economics, if somebody has an idea, I say like, go prove it. Like, I want to see it. I'm not going to make up some theory that this can never happen, but if it's a complete failure, then the onus is on you certainly to force it on us. God forbid to force it on Africa.
0: Right. I certainly hope and pray that the research on the batteries gets better, but it's been about 10 years uh, since they've said, we're gonna find something that can store energy overnight, which would solve a lot of these problems, and they haven't got it. But let's hope they do. But it's a technically, a clearly a very difficult problem uh, to solve, how to store electricity in batteries. Of course, you have to make the batteries. And there's nothing renewable right now about the uh, nuclear, the uh, uh, solar and wind grid, because you have to mine this stuff in Africa under terrible conditions, a lot of it in the, in the old Belgian Congo. Uh, to get what you need for the wind turbines and the solar panels. Then you have to ship it. You have to process it. You have to build the grid to carry it very long ways to the cities and the step up transformers, step down transformers. And, and it's, and then you have to get rid of it in 15 years and find a way to junk it. It's not renewable stuff. The wind and solar are renewable. They're free, but you've got to use a lot of fossil fuels as the Michael Moore film points out uh, to mine the stuff, ship the stuff, uh, uh, con- convert it and, and, and use it and then replace it. They're, it's not renewable. You should put a quotes around renewable uh, because it's built with fossil fuels.
1: Yeah, it's such a weird I- idea that like, you can take one element of a process that, that's quote renewable and then label the whole process renewable. I mean, you could do the same thing for fossil fuels. You could say, well, fossil fuels use oxygen and there's an unlimited supply of oxygen. Therefore, fossil fuels are renewable energy. It's just that, no, you have to look at the nature of the whole
0: uh, process. And- I th- yeah, I think, Alex, all that's happened is that energy's gotten more expensive in the last 10 years, not any cleaner, any less, and well, I wouldn't say carbon dioxide is, is, is dirty anyway. I'd say the sulfur dioxide is, uh, but they really haven't solved the problem. I, I hope that they do. In the meantime, we need the lights on. We need the hospitals to uh, not have to go to. Um, diesel generators. Uh, I call this the dieselization of Africa. Uh, if you travel in Africa, the big man's house, the big pr- president's house, uh, the big factory, the nice hotel in, in Lagos or whatever, the second the power grid goes down, they fire up diesel generators behind mm-hmm. it and they burn the dirtiest, crappiest stuff. If you try to go jogging behind a diesel generator, as I've done in you know Malawi or Sudan or nigeria recently you just come back covered with soot and your lungs are full of it uh to, to tell africa you can't do a coal-fired plant that has the latest um pollution technology and controls this outdoor air pollution and instead when the grid goes down you have to use diesel generators yeah. <laughs> You're, it's it's and pure pollution grounds and moral um, medical grounds it's it's criminal
1: so one more thing about your journey. When did you yeah. come into contact with just the, the facts about CO2 being uh, fertilizer for plants? And how did that come across to you?
0: Alex, you're going to laugh at me because I'd spent 15 years on debate stages talking about climate change models and, uh, and, and the statistical uh, lack of evidence for any problems to date on climate variables, et cetera. Uh, Until I took this job in January 2019, moving from being a member of the CO2 coalition of 55 scientists and economists to being the executive director, I'd never given it a thought. Isn't that fascinating? I talk about that
1: in my book. It shows to me that our our starting point is so anti-human, we assume anything we do must be all bad.
0: (laughs) The first paper I had to edit at my uh, new job for, for uh, Dr. Will Happer at the CO2 Coalition uh, was uh, by Craig Idso, who's an agronomist of great note, uh, looking at the effect of CO2 in the past 50 years uh, on the planet's crops and grasslands and, and tree areas and how it's greening the earth by up to f- 30% by now. CO2 is a much more potent plant fertilizer and plankton fertilizer for the oceans then it is a warming gas. It is both things. It's a warming gas and it's a plant fertilizer, but much more potent on that. So I had to learn in a hurry. Fortunately, I have a brother who's an agronomist. I shipped it right off to him and said, are you kidding me? He said, oh, everybody <laughs> knows that. Don't you know that when you want something really to grow well, you put it in a commercial greenhouse and you triple the parts per million that we have in the atmosphere of CO2 and that's how you get your growth. Greenhouses have CO2 pumped into them
1: yeah it's just i mean you know i come at this from philosophy so i'm just super interested in the idea that i i think so much of it is we start from an idea that human impact is bad that it's morally wrong for us to impact the planet and that it must lead to disaster someday i think those are the two starting points And I love the CO2 example because even if CO2 had some negatives with it, there's this obvious massive positive that is it helps the world be green and it helps us eat. He doesn't like what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) I can can announce that our dog just saw another dog walk by the front of the house. Pardon me. Behave yourself, Douglas. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, I think there is a strange point of philosophy here, which I first saw, uh, Alex, when I was a congressional staffer in the 1980s. I had a number of members in my liberal caucus that were fighting the war in El Salvador and fighting Reagan's MX missile. That sort of stuff that I worked on. But the thing that really got them was overpopulation. And they'd have these meetings of all the members of Congress concerned about that and just talk about how they've got to get people to have less children all over the world. And I think that might have been my first skeptical moment, although I knew nothing about carbon dioxide and climate change and all that stuff. I thought, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me at the time. I wasn't a big expert, but the world looked a lot uh, wealthier and with better food production and better diets every year. And the number of, you know, people are not just takers and users, they're producers and inventors. And magically, somehow we went from 3 billion people, you know, 8 billion people in my lifetime, and things got better. We didn't run out of everything under the sun. Uh, peak oil was uh, defeated by horizontal fracturing that nobody had thought of 10 years ago, uh, in, in particular way they did it. Uh, so that was the first time I saw people who believed in doom, that people were, and these are smart people, good members of Congress I'd worked with closely, but they just had this religious belief that overpopulation was going to destroy the planet. I think there's a lot of that in the climate alarm movement. They don't like to see all these rich people running around this planet taking vacations and filling up the Venice Lagoon with their cruise ships. They just are insulted by it, Uh, but it's working.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you when you talk about your experience with Democrats and liberals, it's, you know, I, I think back to, so I, I was born in 1980, so right before Reagan was uh, elected. And you think about the energy crises of the 1970s. If you yes. look at the late 70s and what Carter was doing, I mean, it, basically, they were upset that we were running out of oil. They were yes. saying, you know, we need to use coal, we need to use, use like synthetic liquid fuels from coal. But if you look at what happened, right? We didn't run out of anything. We became incredible at producing oil. Uh, We became incredibly prosperous. Like today's world is basically what Carter would have dreamed of in terms of how well things went. And yet today's Democrats despise it and say it's horrible.
0: I don't really think they do. In my experience, working on the Hill with a lot of Democratic members, I think that that just has somehow become the party orthodoxy. Most members of Congress are fairly intelligent, or at least more than 50%. I always felt that working there. Across the parties, I worked with a lot of Republicans in the 80s because our caucus on foreign policy happened to be a liberal one that had Democrats and Republicans. The old, this is before your time, because you were born in 1980, but the the internationalist wing of the Republican Party with Nelson Rockefeller, Jim Leach, Mark Hatfield, uh, was very liberal. And, and Mr. Hatfield, who I worked for, a senator from Oregon, always took pleasure in voting to the left of the Democratic caucus in the Senate on ending wars in Central America. You know, it, it wasn't the split the way it is, it is t- today on, on, on that regard. But the Democratic Party became uh, very far left in its base, I think you might say. Uh, and the Republican Party, of course, moved in the other direction. Uh, people start to live where they want to live, with people who believe like them. Um, so, when I went back to the Hill in 2007, when Obama won to run one of these foreign policy committees, the Democrats had been out of power, I think, 14 years, 12 or 14 years since the Gingrich Revolution. And they had to get old people like me to come up and who remembered how to do stuff. Um, we no longer talked to our staff counterparts on the Republican side because they would leak whatever we hmm. said, lie about it, and put it in social media. And our people would do the same to them. And the members never bargained anymore because uh, as soon as you do a compromise on the bill, like, you know, somebody votes 30 million something you don't like, aid to the Contras in Nicaragua. But uh, they also, the other bill has a ban on chemical weapons and you sit down and you trade in the middle of the night. Anyone who does that now will get defeated in a primary, uh, either by the Tea Party on the right or the, uh, the Antifa types on the left, because um, they're not pure anymore. So things have changed dramatically. And I just think It's not true that the Democrats I know believe all this stuff. They'll just wink and say, I'm not going to get my head over the parapet. You can't raise one peep, any question about anything in this very big narrative with many parts about climate catastrophe without immediately being attacked and run out of the New York Times, your university, uh, Boeing. Uh, It just happens every day. This cancel culture, uh, most people don't believe it, but they keep their mouths shut.
1: So that's a great transition to your personal experience. And then I want to go to the coalition. So you mentioned that you were at American University and then you were at another, um, some other organization. Like what was your own experience with getting canceled as your views became
0: known? Um, at American University, uh, being a nice little academic, as soon as I came up with this new set of hypotheses about climate models and the lack of certainty about there, we're going to have a disaster, <laughs> um, I would de- I would ask my friends who worked at downtown environmental groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and the Union of Concerned Scientists, many of whom I knew Alex because they'd been in the arms control and peace communities in in the eighties when I was working on the Hill. So I'd get to know them uh, that way. Uh, They wouldn't come up. They said, no, we we don't debate people who say there's not a climate catastrophe. This is 2005 uh, because it gives you credibility. And so I would go to the (laughs) other professors on the campus, who were in the physics department or were in the environmental science department and say, would you debate me? Would you come to my class? I'll give you the whole class. You know, only one professor, a wonderful sort of liberal guy and didn't really know much about it. He was in international affairs, would come and try to give the arguments. Uh, But I realized then this is something very different. Then the uh, president of the campus, if you can believe it, signed on to a president's pledge about climate change, which was full of scientific nonsense uh, as an institution. joined hundreds of other presidents doing this and decided to start spending money they could have spent on my salary on buying carbon credits and wind power credits, which are a sham out west or down in Costa Rica. Just crazy stuff. Um, and, and when I complained about it, I became sort of a bête noir. I ended up at a think tank uh, called the Institute for Policy Studies, which is a premier anti-imperial, anti-war left-wing think tank in America. So, so, so did you leave AU? Well, I was coming, I can't say that I didn't get booted out. Uh, I was on a 10-year time. I was on a, on, a, on a term time that I would be teaching for five years, and then I would be leaving. So let's put it this way. I didn't get invited back. Uh, it would have taken a lot of hard work gotcha. to be invited back. Uh, so I can't say I was booted for that. And I was ready for other stuff too. I never was the kind of person that wanted to have a 10-year track style job. I like activism more. So I went to the Institute for Policy Studies. That's where I was fired within 24 hours of my op-ed appearing in the Wall Street Journal in 2014 saying Africa needs help. That was a our, great op-ed our help with fossil fuels versus this nonsense about uh, we're gonna make you use wind and solar and force little children to kick soccer balls around all, all day. Somehow it generates inside the soccer ball a little bit of electricity so they can use it to brush their teeth for two minutes. I mean, this notion that Africans should be happy living in the dark because it's pure is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my 40 years in foreign policy. They want exactly what you and I have right now, reliable electricity. And they can have it because Africa is a treasure chest of coal, of, of, uh, of, of natural gas, which they're developing now. Uh, the United States government has refused since 2009 to help with coal plants in Africa, even though that's the cheapest, most reliable, you can literally build the plant right on the coal plant, you use modern American technology to do the scrubbing, and you, and you stop the indoor and outdoor air pollution problems. We will support some natural gas right now. Uh, that's seen as a bridge fuel under Obama, and the United States government still does support, under Power Africa, uh, some natural gas electricity. But they really try to push these solar and uh, wind projects, which are just not ready for grid prime time. If you've got a big city like Lusaka, and you need electricity for your factory, you ain't going to get it from wind turbines.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, in our country, it's already, we're already having industrial, what I call industrial blackouts in terms of, you know, power companies shutting <laughs> off power to factories. <laughs> they don't shut it off to the residential users, but they, you know, they shut it off to the factories. It's, and you think it's about unbelievable. It, you're trying to run a factory. I, I remember I was talking to an executive and these electricity executives will only talk off the record because they're, they're so in bed with, with the government. But I was asking, it was one of the major uh, utilities. And I said, like, how many of these industrial blackouts have you had? And they said, oh, we had 12 this month. And I said, how many did you used to have? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, oh, we used to have zero. Yeah, of course. Because we had, we had re- ample, reliable power. We didn't have this charade where we're trying to, to reduce as much reliable power as possible and then have all this unreliable power and then hope that we can get away with it through the winter and the summer.
0: Every uh, public policy decision that I've been involved in is solved in uh, something called cost-benefit analysis, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They've used Mm -hmm. it for about 50 years in America. You list the benefits of the policy and you list the costs. Now, the Obama administration did that in 2009 in the EPA. They have to, by law, to say, if we ban the use of fossil fuels or start to restrict it or put a price on it, we have to show that the costs to America of of having to use these more expensive uh, renewable type things is outweighed by the benefits we get from not having climate catastrophes that uh, swamp cities and hurricanes that kill people, right? And so they did a cost-benefit analysis. It looks 50, 100, 200, 300 years ahead, and it adds up and puts in the proper values with a proper discount rate for the future value, uh, all the things that might happen. And even with the most extreme scenario called 8.5 RCP of of climate model predictions of warming and disaster, which are simply not being, you know, uh, the the models are just exercises you kind of package for this. Even with that, if you take today's level of of benefits from simply the improved plant productivity from the CO2 that's been inadvertently uh, added to, to the other CO2 in the atmosphere, for the plants, uh, you, you get a net positive impact from using fossil fuels. If they change the EPA endangerment finding to reflect the latest research about the last 10 years, what happens when you put twice as much carbon dioxide in the air, which they do in these fantastic experiments, Alex, they'll have big um, windmills over the huge fields of crops, but they're pointing down. So they in fact create a monster, massive greenhouse by keeping the CO two there. Mm. So you can double for a year the level of CO two. They're getting thirty percent growth in the plants just from that. No more. They didn't have to change the fertilizer, change the breeding, uh, change the, uh, the the GMO or the the water. Actually, uses less water and less fertilizer. Uh, CO two is this massive plant food that in itself makes the benefits of fossil fuels uh, outweigh the costs. Even if you did have the claimed rise in sea level and hurricanes, which we haven't seen.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So how then did you get involved with the CO2 coalition? What is the CO2
0: coalition? Uh, When I published in the journal, and then there was a little kerfuffle where I got fired in the journal and wrote another story explaining how I'd been fired for expressing this by a liberal group. And by the way, I recognize why the Institute of Policy Studies fired me. They would have lost their funding for all their work on all the different foreign policy things that they work on if they had let me stay there and keep saying this. They're all the foundations would have cut them off in a heartbeat. It's at universities too. I have friends who are on the boards of big universities and their presidents begged them, please don't talk about this stuff, members of our coalition, because we might lose our funding from the National Science Foundation. You know, it's, this is enforced by money. Um, so uh, people heard about me and a, a lovely woman named Kathleen Hartnett White at the Texas Public Policy Foundation who had been Texas's top environmental regulator, called me up and said, you know, tracked me down at AU and said, where um, I was still adjunct, and said, why don't you come down to our meeting here in Austin and talk about your experiences? And I was on a panel with people like Richard Linson, atmospheric physicist, one of the greats in America, uh, Will Happer, uh, p- particle physicist. Um, it was just amazing people, and I just adored it. Uh, Now, I had a little bit to talk to them about, Alex, because one of the things I did in my course on climate statistics, which was not for scientists, but for people in public policy, uh, we used a textbook on elementary climate physics uh, written by uh, Fred Taylor of Oxford University, who's not a partisan in this matter, just a great physicist. So I was familiar by having worked my kids through these elementary textbooks for the statistics course with a lot of the things they were talking about, obviously not the great level of detail that Lindsay and Happer had. And I was just sitting at their feet, soaking up, they were just educating me and talking in more and more detail. And we became friends and they asked me to join their coalition, uh, the CO2 coalition in about 2017 or 18 and to speak for them once in a while. Uh, When I joined, uh, it was about 40 scientists and economists who take it on the chin all the time. They're at a university, many of them have tenure, and so they feel they can speak out and say the case for climate catastrophe does not at all justify uh, eliminating the use of our efficient fossil fuels. A remarkable set of people. Some are refugees from the left, like Patrick Moore, who helped found Greenpeace and, you know, used to go out and throw himself in front of people shooting harpoons at seals uh, and stopping nuclear tests back in the in this late 70s. Um, goodness, and for him, it's the early 70s. Um, and then they asked me to be their executive director when Will Happer, this great physicist from Princeton, who'd helped found the coalition, went to the White House to be Trump's science guy on the National Security Council for a year recently. So that's why I came in and took over for Will.
1: And, well, let's talk then about what's been happening with uh, Facebook and with this group, uh, I mean, there's Climate Power 2020. I saw a letter from them. What's, what's going on here?
0: Oh, uh, Alex... Um, The reason Facebook and Twitter are so important to us and podcasts uh, with people like you and just anyone I can speak with is that the left-leaning media from USA Today and the CNN over through the Post and the the New York Times, let alone the networks, um, you can't get on there anymore or or appear in an article anymore or send an op-ed anymore explaining the complexity even of uh, the climate change system. So um, uh, we have to um, appear to pass okay, our message did along. You,
1: did you cut off your video by any Hold chance? There
0: you go. Uh, I, I received a phone call that I was trying to ignore. I um, see. Thank yeah, you. that's one of uh, the
1: curses of Zoom on the phone. Okay.
0: As I was saying, I, uh, I found out quickly that we could not appear in the left-leaning media so you, you never can reach people with this news they've never heard before and get them to think about the complex complexity of the issues without Facebook and Twitter. That's how you reach people. So we began to put a lot of advertising, a lot of work on our staff uh, into building our Facebook and Twitter feeds and try to publish something every day that's interesting and debates with different people. Um, you know, Primarily, we're a congressional education group. That's why we're in Washington. We have staff who go up to the Hill talk to members and staff. I go up to the Hill to talk to my old Democratic colleagues when I can and to my new Republican friends most of the time and testify. But we do public education. And that's how the public is educated, what you're doing right now. And so that's why I think um, the groups that are in the climate business have been going after uh, the New York Times and all them to drive us away from that source of media. So now they see what we're doing. We're being very effective. Some of our members have, like Pat Michaels, a climatologist, He used to be the president of all the state organizations of climatologists, his video uh, about climate models had 3 million views. So, of course, people are going to say, we need to stop this. The people on the alarmist side, and they've created a so-called fact-checking group uh, created by a climate activist who says this is his goal, is to shut our down debate, named Eric Michaelman, who somehow have ended up as Facebook's, get this, fact-checker, like putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. They are our opponents whenever we would testify on the Hill, one of our scientists, one of their scientists, you know, the Democrats invite one, Republicans invite the other. And now the other guy sitting next to our guys is in charge of saying that he's false and needs to be banned from from Facebook. So we protested, we showed in detail why our description of models was as good as theirs. And it's mostly a matter of opinion anyway, uh, on the future, it's all about the future. Uh, what percentage of the rise in temperature since 1900? The one degree is natural, which is human-caused. You know, we can see that most of it is natural because there was no uh, human effect till 1950 when half of it was done. But nobody knows exactly the right percentage. So suddenly our videos started to have false labels on them about a year ago, where you couldn't forward them to people. People I couldn't advertise them and couldn't boost them. All the things you use to spread your your reach through the algorithms, they were screwing with us. Now, this happens, of course, on Twitter, on Wikipedia, on Google. You know, within a year, if you and I are talking, um, the fact that you have an independent way to post this may be the only reason anybody will ever hear it. We may be shut out of all the big social media giants. The pressure is intense. The size of the group that just took out after us last week, this Climate Power 2020 funded by Tom Steyer and fronting Stacey Abrams of Georgia, it's got all the biggest environmental groups on it. Their total budget's going to be in the billions of dollars. You know, we're a half a million dollar a year group <laughs> trying, to, trying to make a point in, in this noise that they've got. Um, they think they can get us off of Facebook and Twitter the same way they got us out of the mainstream media. It's a, it's a battle for educational space, I guess you could say.
1: So what are you doing to fight back?
0: We always try to be as loud as we can. Uh, we protest, we in detail provide the scientific basis. If Facebook um, bans or puts a false label on one of our things, we immediately put up another one that says, let's talk about Facebook's false label. They can't, they can't uh, censor that because we're talking about their label and we're giving our reasons why. Mm. Uh, you, but probably they'll come up with some reason for that. We, we publicize it. We go to our friends on the Hill because climate feedback, which is uh, the people that Facebook have decided is nonpartisan, unbiased enough to to check our scientific facts, and I'll stack up our people (laughs) against theirs anytime, Um, also has health feedback, which goes after groups that oppose abortion. Uh, And Senator Cruz and others this year had to jump in when they were censoring people very similarly to us on the health feedback, uh, who were saying things about abortion and abortion effects that uh, health feedback didn't want to hear. That's part of the team with climate feedback. It's all funded by the same purpose. So poor Facebook, you know, they're scared of everybody. They're scared of their, their users, they're scared of the people that advertise there, as you know, they're scared of Senator Cruz on the right and, and Senator Whitehouse on the left. They're just trying to, like a salmon moving upstream, they're trying to move through this terrible, terrible turbulence to get to their financial goal. We're just a little piece of their puzzle, but we're determined to be a, a piece. They have to worry about us because we're, we're in their face.
1: Yeah, I mean, you seem to be taking this with some levity. I just think this is so outrageous that, that these people are, I mean, their whole response is to say, you should not be heard. And you know, Facebook part of the appeal of it is this is a way of sharing your ideas with people you value. And obviously <laughs> right, right. there are a lot of people on Facebook who want to share their ideas. And these guys, I mean, what if they had any integrity at all, what they would do is they would actually just refute what you say on your page, right? right. They would we've put it, comments. And they would say, like, this is what's wrong and go to the truth. And we debunk them very clearly here. And we explain very step by step how the models are valid, how it's going to be climate catastrophe, how we can't adapt, how solar and wind are ready for prime time. But they can't make any of these arguments. And so all they say is they say, oh, yeah, climate change is real. You're a climate denier. Uh, Shut up.
0: Though that one, I do try to keep a good uh, humorous attitude, Alex. But when I see the climate denier one, even though it's been out there for 10 years. Um, uh, it was built off the Holocaust denier claim about the murder of six million Jews not happening. Uh, I find it an atrocious thing, and I do get a little upset. And I said to these people the other day uh, in our press release and to every reporter and editor like Newsweek, Washington Post, uh, E&E News that used the word climate denier in the headline of the article about me or our members, you know, just show me one fact, one scientific fact Uh, that I am denying or our publications deny. And of course they can't and they don't because what they're saying is you're against this consensus that uh, we're all about to die from this. Now the irony of that is there is a scientific consensus about CO2 and we are part of it. Like the IPCC, we believe it's a warming gas because we know the spectroscopy of the physics. It's a slight warming gas. Otherwise, the Earth's atmosphere would be about 60 degrees colder if um, water vapor, the primary warming gas, didn't have the effect of keeping radiation from leaving the Earth's system. CO2 is a tiny, tiny part of it, but it's a warming gas. And it's also a plant food. Uh, Those are the two, only about the only two things we know about about CO2. Do you know the term samizdat? No. S-A-M-I-Z-D-A-T. In the Soviet Union, um, which was only around for about nine years of your life, um, people who were being censored by the government and had losing their apartments because they kept speaking out and the kids couldn't get into school and they couldn't get food, you know, the underground of truth tellers in the Soviet Union, uh, relied on samizdat, which means underground, underground press. They would write something up, have a mimeograph machine, smuggle something in from Poland or the United States and pass it around surreptitiously for people to read. Millions of people in the Soviet Union, without the cops finding them, were hiding and passing these underground bits of truth. That's sort of what we do with Facebook and Twitter. That's our samizdat. That's our underground way of reaching people because we're not allowed to be in the mainstream media or they would be hammered by their consumers and advertisers. If I was allowed now, like we used to be 10 years ago, on McNeil-Lair News hour or CNN to debate Bill Nye the science guy, who's not a scientist and doesn't know anything about science, but I could debate him, they would be inundated with the cancel culture and be at some financial risk. They're just not gonna do it. So we need our samizdat. But you know, if we're reduced to running around here and handing out leaflets at people's doors that explain how climate models do and don't work, um, you know, we're gonna win in the end anyway because it's such an absurd proposition uh, that there's a single view of a complex topic like the chaotic and systematically uh, difficult to understand atmosphere.
1: Now, there's so much that I find objectionable about the climate change denier smear. And one, one aspect besides the one you mentioned, is just that the people who are questioning climate catastrophe, and I think are taking a, a proper big picture look at fossil fuels, right. like that takes a lot of courage. And there's this bizarre mythology that the fossil fuel industry is just handing out gold <laughs> bricks to people. like <laughs> I yeah. wish. I, I know, wish but, I was- but it's like, it's, it's, it's like, as if, as if, you know, you just decided to completely inconvenience your It's like a fossil fuel company came to you. 10 years ago and said, and, and I mean, I've met so many of the people and in fact was at the founding of the CO2 coalition. So I've met everyone, oh, okay. at least all the principals there. And, and everyone has their own story and not one of the stories begins with like, <laughs> Hey, Exxon <Mobil laughs> targeted me or something. It's more just this oppression by the mainstream that it takes a lot of courage. I mean, like Richard Linz and Dick Linz and like, that's, you know, a super prestigious atmospheric scientist. He didn't have to do all of this stuff in terms of opposing it i mean he could have just been you know a top climate scientist at mit but he believed something different and he stood up and he continues to and i i really admire those of you involved in the coalition and it's just the exact opposite of the truth whereas the mainstream people that takes no courage at all to just repeat these empty generalities like climate change is real and then to passively support these horrific policies of rapidly reducing fossil fuel use
0: well, I think the country is more split than uh, you and I. I think you're out on the West Coast, aren't you?
1: Yes, I'm in California.
0: And I'm on the East Coast in D.C. We find by looking at our users on the Twitter feeds and the Facebook that uh, the, the, the coasts live in, a, in, 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 in fear of climate change uh, because of the propaganda in the, sort of the ac- academia and the media there. But in the middle of the country, most people have a generally healthy skepticism towards the end is near. Doomsayers. And President Trump has put his finger on it. He uses language like that, you know, fortune tellers, doomsayers, right. uh, everything is great in this country. Go out and have a wonderful time. Uh, it's not the horror story that they, they think it is. Um, uh, look, I, I always tell people who bring that up, and, and it's right, every time I'm in Congress, the first thing I hear from Democrats is fossil fuel companies and Exxon knew. And of course, Exxon didn't know anything anybody else knew and the people who ran that project to Sue Exxon keep losing because they just lied and made up stuff and put quotes in their memos that weren't, weren't there. Nobody really knows um, what the total impact will be of carbon dioxide on the, on the planet, uh, on, the, on, the, on temperature, but so far it, is, it isn't much. Um, so I think when people say to me, oh, it's that, I said, yes, that's right. I was happily a left-wing professor in 2004 when I decided, why don't I ruin my career? and go find a fossil fuel company that maybe in the year 2020 will give me a nickel. Uh, Because they don't. We're not funded by fossil fuel companies. They're smart, they smell uh, profits just like Mark Zuckerberg does. By about 2010, they all got out of the way and became beyond petroleum. They don't believe it either, that it's a climate crisis, but they know it's not good for business to say anything. And of course, Alex, they always make money. If they're told to spend out in California, uh, make sure 40% of their energy comes from wind, they'll say, so, show me where to sign up and you know, I'll be the person that sells the wind turbines. I mean, they'll make money on anything, the energy companies. The only people paying for this are you consumers in California whose bills are much higher uh, than they should be in the natural gas era. And your reliability is much lower than it should be in the natural gas era.
1: I mean, one, you know, one thing I experience I've had, cause I've gotten to, you know, my, my background, I didn't know anyone in the fossil fuel industry and I came up with my ideas, but in, in the years since I've gotten to meet a lot and gotten to speak to a lot of people. And you know a lot of people watching this uh, w- work in the fossil fuel industry. And so I know that you know, we have a lot of people who are really passionate, some because they produce it, some because they know the value of it as consumers. So I'd ask you, what can listeners or viewers of this show do to support your work, uh, both in this thing with Facebook and then more broadly?
0: Well, I think for Facebook, uh, we certainly appreciate people on Facebook going to the CO2 Coalition retweeting and posting our stuff, um, sending notes to Facebook to say, let these scientists debate each other. That's really what science is about. Um, I think that's good. Uh, on the broader issue, uh, hey, I came to Washington in the 1980s, as I always tell people to stop the Vietnam War, meaning the war been over a long time, but there's always a war here. And you come and you try to influence policy. In the end, Congress will make these decisions. In the end, uh, Congress will either pass restrictions on um, on 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 energy or or not. And at the moment, the the alarmists have not won. There are enough people in the Republican Party that they will block any completely crazy thing from passing the Senate. The House will pass something crazy. They did that first in 2007, the Waxman bill to um, cap and trade carbon dioxide or something. Uh, these these sorts of uh, Green New Deal, the Green New Death, as I call them, for poor people, uh, both in Africa and in America, where when the price of, of, elect- of, of heating goes down in Ohio, lives are saved because people will use more, more heat because natural gas permits it. 11,000 lives a year, according to the um, uh, National Institutes of Health, are saved simply because fracking brought low energy prices since the year 2011 for heating in the Midwest, where people get cold in winter and enough people will get bronchitis and die if they don't use the heat. So this is, this is life and death. People need to speak out about it. Uh, but they have to, uh, frankly, uh, support candidates for office who uh, are in favor of energy and careful, realistic uh, climate science.
1: And where can people learn more about CO2 Coalition?
0: Well, we have a website called the CO2 Coalition, and we invest a lot in putting an interesting, readable new article on it every day, or we'll post videos like my appearance with you, we'll post that. Our 55 members write um, scientific and economic studies, but written in a way that the average member of Congress can understand them. And trust me, that means the average citizen can, can read them. So what we pride ourselves on is taking people like Lindzen and Happer and Moore and Idso, who are brilliant scientists and helping them rewrite their material in a way that our white papers and our policy briefs are understandable by the average citizen, Uh, they can call me up. My phone number is listed on every single one of my emails. And I love to talk to people. I miss teaching. um, And I'd love to talk to you all about it.
1: And I'll bet if there's a climate catastrophist listening who thinks he can set you straight, I'll bet you'd be willing to talk to him too.
0: Once a week, Alex, I reach out to someone who's written something that um, I disagree with. And I encourage them to call me And I have some interesting conversations off the record with with people, frequently they end with saying, well, you may be right on the atmosphere, but the oceans are acidifying. And that starts a whole new conversation because (laughs) the oceans cannot get past a pH of 7.8 on the way to acidity, which is under 7. So I have good conversations like that. I know a lot of people can't change their mind uh, in the media and in the Democratic Party and academia because they'd be hammered and have their life turn into my life, get their head above the parapet and things get more complicated. But um, I still do believe in the exchange of of scientific ideas.
1: Awesome. Well, I really admire that about you and I admire the work you're doing. Uh, Can you hang on about 45 seconds? I'm going to close the show and then I want to talk to you for a minute afterward.
0: Great, Alex. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks so much for coming. All right. Thanks to Dr. Caleb Rossiter for joining me. I really uh, admire the work he's doing and the work the CO2 Coalition is doing. Uh, That's the show for today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at at alexepstein.com. You know, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And to subscribe to the newsletter, go to industrialprogress.com. Also, if you want to support our work, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. That's it for this week. Next week, I think we'll probably have Uh, Patrick Moore on. I think I've convinced him to come on. That'll be really exciting. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.